Last time we spoke about the landing at Sador and the driving against Seo. The Australians were still advancing across Shaggy Ridge when General Douglas MacArthur unleashed another amphibious assault, this time against Sador, to cut off the Japanese escape and isolate Seo. Numerous features were seized up on the large ridge, and the Americans successfully amphibiously assaulted Sador and seized their airfield. General Adachi placed the 51st and 20th Divisions under the command of General Nakano, who was then tasked with advancing to Gali to try and secure a new supply point. Meanwhile, efforts were made to try and contain the new threat in Sador, while simultaneously holding back the Australians in the south. Over on New Britain, the aerodrome was seized as Colonel Katayama launched a failed counterattack against the Marines. The Marines tossed back the attack and began their own advance further inland. This episode is the Lido Road Offensive. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I just released a full documentary on many of the Medals of Honor earned during the Battle for Guadalcanal. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is on why the Japanese performed so many atrocities during the Pacific War. It's going to be a gruesome one. Check it out. The Americans had landed at Cape Gloucester. Sador, and were carrying out massive attacks against Rabaul. As we had seen previously, on November the 5th, aided by some very bad weather, a surprise air raid was made by the USS Saratoga in Princeton, led by Rear Admiral Frederick Sherman, that inflicted heavy damage to four cruisers within the harbor. Maya's engine room was smashed by a bomb killing over 70 men, a 500-pound bomb hit Mogami, Takeo took two 500-pound bomb hits, while three 500-pound bombs narrowly missed the Atago, killing 23 seamen and causing severe damage to the ship's planing. Two other cruisers and three destroyers also suffered some light to moderate damage. Captain George Chandler, flying a P-38 fighter, described the scene. There were B-24 bombers up high, B-25 bombers attacking right down on the deck, dropping frag bombs on the airplanes along the runways. We did our best work at high altitude, but... We also took part in combat at a thousand feet off the ground. The devastation caused Admiral Manichi Koga to withdraw his forces to truck, thus ending the IGN threat to Bougainville. A Japanese naval officer would later admit that they had given up on Bougainville mainly because of the serious damage received by several second fleet cruisers at Rabaul by a carrier strike. The successful raid against Rabaul left Halsey ecstatic. It is real music to me and opens the stops for a funeral dirge for Tojo's Rabaul. 
On November the 8th, they'd be receiving reinforcements led by Rear Admiral Alfred Montgomery's Task Force 38, with the new fleet carriers USS Bunker Hill, Essex, and Independence. With the added carrier strength, on November the 11th, a follow-up raid was made, seeing the Aegean cruiser Agano torpedoed and badly damaged. Alongside this, 35 Japanese aircraft out of 120 launched in a counterattack against the carrier force, and they were shot down. Montgomery would not lose a single ship. Admiral Koga's decision to send carrier pilots to bolster Rabaul had quite literally blown up in his face. Koga's air fleet had lost 43 of its 82 Zeros, 38 of its 60 Vals, 34 of its 40 Kates, and 6 Judy Spotter planes. Over 86 of his 192 experienced pilots and crew had perished, and he had only inflicted minimal damage to Nimitz's fleet. It was a complete disaster. Yet the fantastical reports from Japanese pilots kept pouring in, claiming the air battles over Bougainville were, in fact, won by the Aegean Air Forces. Newspapers in the home islands reported victories that added up to the destruction of five American battleships, ten carriers, 19 cruisers, and seven destroyers. The reality was the destruction of just two cruisers, the USS Birmingham and Denver. By mid-November, Vice Admiral Kuzaka was finding it difficult to sustain attacks against the Allied convoys, feeding supplies to the Empress Augusta Bay area. On November the 12th, Rabaul only had 113 zeros, of which around 59 were actually operational. Crews were suffering from malaria and other diseases. No one was granted rest as they were limited in personnel and under constant attack. The quality of the ground control crews and the pilots was deteriorating every week. From November the 12th through December the 16th, the daytime skies over the Gazelle Peninsula remained relatively quiet as the U.S. carrier forces had departed to support operations in the Central Pacific. Air Souls received a new commander on November the 20th, Major General Ralph Mitchell, who continued to support operations in Bougainville, and General Kenny's 5th Air Force was supporting preparations for the landings in western New Britain. The lull gave Admiral Kuzaka a brief opportunity to recuperate as replacements began to arrive from places like the Marshalls and Truck. The Imperial Japanese Navy would take six months to replenish its carrier pilots with less well-trained and inexperienced replacements. In the meantime, the carrier fleet itself, Japan's most expensive and precious strategic asset, was forced to remain idle in truck as Nimitz began his island-hopping campaign through the Central Pacific. Meanwhile, the Torokina airfield had become crude but operational. The Seabees had created a single 4,750-foot by 200-foot airstrip. It lacked taxiways, hard stands, and buildings, but by December the 10th, it could launch aircraft. Soon, the Seabees would carve two additional landing strips in the jungle three miles further inland. The first would be about a mile long, the second 8,000 feet for larger bombers. Unlike the Japanese airfields on the Gazelle Peninsula, which would take more than a year to complete, both of these American airfields took about a month. You often hear, especially from Marine veterans of the Pacific War, praise for the Seabees. Such a colossal advantage in logistics paved the way to victory. A massive fighter sweep was launched on December the 17th, consisting of 32 Corsairs, 24 Hellcats, and 24 RNZAF Kitty Hawks from airfields at New Georgia and Vela Lavella, who rendezvoused at Torokina, topped off their fuel tanks, and then hit Rabaul. The strike was led by Major Greg Pappy Boynton, the commanding officer of the Marine Fighter Squadron Number 214, better known by its nickname, the Black Sheep Squadron. 
The three types of aircraft had different flying characteristics and different cruising speeds. The Kitty Hawks, slowest of the bunch, took off first. The plan was for them to come in at about 15,000 feet to lure out the Japanese. Next came the Hellcats, flying above the Kitty Hawks. And last were the Corsairs, who would fly top cover. It was a very long flight over some open water, calculated to make the pilot of a single-engine aircraft quite nervous. If the engine failed, it was a very long swim home. They were intercepted by 35 Zeros, with the Kitty Hawks getting the first jump on them. After the Kitty Hawks made their first pass, shooting down a Japanese fighter, the advantage switched over to the more agile Zeros. The Kitty Hawk squadron leader's plane was fatally damaged and a second Kitty Hawk went down after colliding with a Zero. Remarkably, both pilots survived. Meanwhile, the Hellcats and Corsairs at higher altitudes were coming up empty. The Corsairs circled Lukunai Field, finding no targets. Pilot Boyington exchanged insults with an English-speaking Japanese officer over the radio, but despite his challenges, found no targets in the air. When all aircraft returned to base, the score was even. Two Kitty Hawks and two Zeros were lost, one each due to a collision, and one shot down by both sides. It was a rather disappointing fighter sweep, but would become just one of many against Rabaul over the course of the next three weeks. The next raid came two days later, seeing 48 B-24s launched, but 32 were forced to turn back. The remaining 16 bombers, escorted by 51 fighters, were intercepted by 94 Japanese fighters, yet they also suffered from some pretty bad weather. Less than half made contact with the enemy. In the resulting fight, five Zeros were shot down and ten Allied aircraft were lost, but only two were actually shot down. The other eight were due to mid-air collisions and some landing mishaps, all near home. The weather persisted to be so bad, it was only on the 23rd another sortie could be launched. B-24s escorted by Corsairs and Hellcats bombed Lacunae. Radar gave the Japanese some early warning, and nearly a hundred Zeros were scrambled. Sixty made contact with the bombers after they hit Lacunae. No bombers were lost, but two Corsairs were shot down in the ensuing dogfights. Yet the Americans had a twist. They followed up the raid with a fighter sweep of 48 Corsairs. They arrived 15 minutes after the bombers left, surprising the airborne Japanese fighters, most of whom lacked radios. Six Zeros were shot down, several others damaged, and only two Corsairs were lost. Two days later, another fighter sweep preceded by bombers was launched claiming 18 aircraft kills, but it was probably closer to five. In comparison, the Japanese pots would claim 55 kills, a number greater than the actual American force sent. On the 27th, another sweep was launched against Cape Gloucester, downing seven Japanese aircraft for one American. 28 Corsairs returned the next day, but this time the Japanese held the advantage, sandwiching the Marines between two large groups of Zeros. Three Corsairs would be shot down, but so were three Zeros, with two others badly damaged. On the 30th, 36 Liberators escorted by 20 Hellcats and 20 Corsairs bombed Rabaul. One B-24 was lost on the raid, hit by some anti-aircraft gunfire. No air combat occurred that day. On New Year's Day, 15 B-24s and 68 escorting fighters met heavy fighter opposition. 40 new Zeros had been sent to Rabaul from truck, manned by veteran pilots. One B-24 was shot down, and two others were badly damaged. On January the 2nd, 48 U.S. fighters raided, and on the 3rd, another 44. The two sweeps took a handful of fighters away from the Japanese. The last sweep on the 5th saw another two Zeros downed. 
as annoying as it might be me listing days upon days upon days of these air raids, the underlying message is the Allies, particularly America, can afford to lose fighters all the time. Japan cannot. All these other significant islands in the Central Pacific are being depleted of fighters and pilots so that they can protect Rabaul. Japan is basically giving up tomorrow to try and save today. Now, meanwhile, back on December the 24th, Admiral Sherman's Task Force 37 raided Kaving. The operation had two purposes. The first was to distract attention away from the landings at Cape Gloucester. The second was to interdict some sea traffic between truck and Rabaul. The 5,000-ton naval transport Tenjumaru was sunk, and several other ships were pretty damaged. After this, Task Force 37 made several raids against Kaving through January the 4th. They managed to shoot down about 10 Japanese fighters, damage the IGN cruiser Noshiro, and destroyers Fumizuki and Satsuki. On January the 6th, the bomber strip at Piva became operational, thus Rabaul was now within range of Allied light and medium bombers. Basically, it was pounding time now. On January the 7th, 16 Avengers and 24 Dauntless raided Tobura Airfield. From medium altitudes, the Avengers dropped 2,000-pound bombs smashing the paved runways. The Japanese managed to shoot down three fighters and one Dauntless, but Tobura was temporarily non-operational. It was the first time any Rabaul airbase was neutralized from bombing. This would be followed up on the 11th by a low-level attack against Vuna Canal, by B-25s damaging eight parked aircraft. Then on the 14th, Simpson Harbor was attacked by 16 Avengers, 36 Dauntless, and fighter escorts. The Japanese tossed 84 fighters, but the Allies held a very tight formation. It was rather difficult to get at the bombers. Two bombers would be lost before reaching Lacunae, one to a mid-air collision, and one to anti-aircraft gunfire. When the Allied aircraft finally arrived, clouds shielded Lacunae, so the bombers switched to targeting the ships in Simpson Harbor. The Avengers carried 2,000-pound bombs, limiting their effectiveness. Regardless, they landed hits on the 15,400-ton oiler Naruto, and thus ended its goal of becoming the Hokage. Uh, that was almost as bad as a dad joke. The destroyer Matsukaze was also damaged alongside five other vessels. Air Souls came back to hit Simpson Harbor and Blanche Bay three days later, sinking the Komaki Maru, the Kosai Maru, Yamaguri Maru, Hakai Maru, and Iwate Maru. To take down the combined 30,000 tons of shipping, Air Souls lost 8 P-38s, 1 Hellcat, 1 F-4U, 1 Avenger, and 1 Dauntless. The rest of January saw many other raids, sometimes 2-3 to three on the same day. Thus, I literally can't spend the entire podcast listing their actions. But the losses were brutal. For the Americans, they would lose about 23 aircraft between January the 23rd to the 30th. For the Japanese, it was around 37. By the end of the month, Rabaul was being bled dry of aircraft. Thus, the rest were withdrawn to truck with around 40 pilots. To make up for the withdrawal, Admiral Koga brought over air groups from carriers Junio, Hio, and Io. On the 25th, adding 62 zeros, 18 vowels, and 18 kates to Admiral Kuzaka's dwindling forces. Does that not sound like performing the exact same action that saw such devastating losses occur in December to early January? Yes. Yes, it does. Moving over to New Britain, General Shepard had just smashed the Japanese positions along Suicide Creek. While seizing Suicide Creek, some Americans captured a Japanese dispatch, stating, It is essential that we conceal the intention that we are maintaining positions on Agiri Ridge. 
Concerning the occupation of this position, it is necessary that Agiriyama is maintained. While making arrangements for the Japanese assault against Target Hill, Lieutenant Abe had sent field dispatches to Warrant Officer Kiyoshi Yamaguchi, one of his platoon leaders. The dispatch mentioned command post locations, hour of attack, and other orders. Yamaguchi, with that seemingly incredible indifference to basic security, which the Japanese so often demonstrated, simply stuck the dispatch in his pocket and carried it with him into the assault. Marines found it on his body the following morning, thereby gaining the first inkling of the existence of a terrain feature which did not seem to appear on any of their maps. Yet the Japanese seemed to place great importance upon it, for reasons not yet clear. Augiri Ridge was not in the American maps and it was currently held by the 2nd Battalion, 53rd Regiment and 2nd Battalion, 141st Regiment. Behind the ridge was a wide trail leading to Magarupa, connecting Matsuda's HQ with Borgen Bay. The trail was heavily used and concealed extremely well from American aircraft. Back over at the American lines, by January the 5th, the 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines had pulled back into the reserve, allowing the weapons company, 7th Marines, to occupy the extreme left along the shore to prepare Shepard's offensive against Hill 150. The new formation launched their attack at 11 a.m. on the 6th. Tanks surged forward to smash a roadblock held by the 2nd Battalion, 141st Regiment, on the left trail. Artillery was deployed on a nearby hill, hitting the Japanese lines as A Company tried to break through but was quickly pinned down by the roadblock. The tanks eventually burst through the roadblock, sending the Japanese fleeing for their lives. The Americans advanced through the increasingly swampy terrain, facing weaker resistance. B Company crossed a small stream before storming Hill 150 during the afternoon. Further to the right, C Company and the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines were surprised to be held up by extremely heavy fire from what was, until then, an unknown feature, Augiri Ridge. The men had no other choice than to pull back to a safe distance and dig in, as they reported back the presence of a heavily fortified position. The Japanese would unleash carnage upon the men for two days whenever they tried to press forward. On the 7th, the commanding officer of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, was wounded and replaced by Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Walt. The next day, Walt's men were cautiously inching forward under heavy enemy fire through dense jungle when they first encountered the ground rising in steepness. At this point, Walt realized the feature had to be Algeri Ridge. On the 9th, the assault battalions resumed their attacks, this time with heavy artillery support against Algeri Ridge. Walt was reinforced by companies K and L from the 7th Marines, but their advance was extremely slow and painful. Two Japanese bunkers were knocked out with white phosphorus grenades, but that ended the limited gains that they made. Walt personally began pushing a 37mm gun, excruciatingly foot by foot up Aguri Ridge, firing a volley of canisters every few steps he took. Somehow he managed to get the gun up on a steep slope into a decent position to sweep the ridge, allowing the gain of a foothold on the crest of Aguri. The loss of the ridge was a huge threat to Matsuda and Katayama's positions, so the later decided to throw his reserves in a desperate effort to counterattack. At 1.15 a.m. on the 10th, Katayama sent his recently arrived 3rd Battalion to attack the reverse slope. However, the Marines held firm and would end up repelling five consecutive Banzai charges with a fury and persistence unparalleled in the campaign. On their fourth try, a Japanese major and two company officers succeeded in knifing through the Marine cordon, nearly to Colonel Walt's foxhole, 50 yards behind the front line. 
At that very instant, two short rounds of a 60-round artillery barrage burst a tall tree almost directly overhead, and the Major was killed right there, sword in hand and pistol in the other. The fifth charge was blunted by artillery, and the Japanese finally cut their losses and simply pulled back. The Japanese had suffered immense casualties, seeing all three of their battalions depleted, forcing Katayama to pull off Algiri Ridge that very night. The morning of the 10th saw Walt's men securing the feature and then discovering the vital Magariopa Trail. The Marines went to work mopping up the area until the 12th, whereupon Shepard planned to seize Hill 660. The feature was guarded by the 6th Company 141st Regiment, supported by a number of guns of the 30th Machine Cannon Company. The fresh 3rd Battalion 7th Marines, led by Lieutenant Colonel Harry Bush Jr., were to perform the main assault, with the 1st Battalion extending the perimeter behind them. To help the effort, the Weapons Company 7th Marines of Captain Buckley would begin constructing a roadblock between the eastern base of Hill 660 to the shore of Borgen Bay, hoping to cut off the defenders' escape route. At 8 a.m. on the 13th, after artillery, motors, and the 5th Air Force performed a bombardment of the area, the last Marine offensive commenced. A intricate system of small arms and automatic weapon positions going up to the summit unleashed fire upon the Marines, quickly pinning down I Company. L Company attempted swinging to the right, but were also pinned down. Engineers worked a light tank forward far enough to place fire across a gorge, demolishing the more troublesome enemy weapons. By late afternoon, together with the artillery's support fire, the pinned down companies were rescued and withdrawn for the night. Meanwhile, the weapons company worked with their bulldozer, and by 10.30, they had skirted the eastern base of the hill and set up a all-around perimeter. There they dug in clearing fields of fire for about 60 yards to both the north and south, placing their half-tracks and tanks in supporting positions. The only opposition they encountered during the advance was by two Japanese machine guns and placed near the summit of the hill. With all of that said and done, they did successfully cut off the Japanese line of retreat. On the morning of the 14th, the 3rd Battalion resumed their attack, with their leading companies advancing to the right, working their way up. One unit nearly got atop the crest before coming under fire from heavy machine guns. They got to a position where they could bring 60mm motors to bear, and they went to work neutralizing the machine gun positions before a final surge carried them across the summit. The Japanese fled down the crest heading east, coming straight into the line of fire of the weapons company below. The result was a terrible rout, seeing many escape to the safety of the swamps and to the hills southeast. By the end of the 14th, the Marines had seized Hill 660, and they were performing mop-up operations through the following day. At 5.30 a.m. on the 16th, Katayama ordered the 6th and 11th companies of the 141st Regiment to counterattack Hill 660. Soon the Marines were face-to-face -face with a large bonsai charge, seeing the fighting getting up close and personal. But small arms, rifles, 60mm motors, and 81mm artillery broke the Japanese. Over 110 Japanese bodies would be found after the fight. This effectively ended Shepard's offensive, as the remnants of Colonel Sumiya's forces began to arrive to the Borgen Bay area. Over the next few days, the exhausted 7th Marines were relieved by the 5th Marines and the 2nd Battalion 1st Marines, who had recently been recalled after completing their mission at Green Beach. After suffering the defeat in Borgen Bay, General Sakai decided to order the 1st Battalion 54th Regiment to reinforce Talasia and for Matsuda to launch a last-ditch effort, a suicidal one at that, to obliterate the enemy. But the men were in no condition for such an offensive, thus Katayama elected to postpone it for now. Since every man was needed for the defense of Borgen Bay, Colonel Sato took the remainder of his command and departed Rook Island to join the main body. 
Now that Hill 660 was secured, the Americans began a new method of patrolling. This time their patrols would specifically seek out and destroy what was presumed to be exhausted Japanese units, before the full division would attack the defensive line at the Morgan Bay-Itney River area. Yet that is it for New Britain for today, as we're now going to be traveling over to the CBI Theater. Between November the 22nd to December the 1st, two conferences were held between the Allied leaders. The first was known as the Cairo or Sextant Conference on November the 22nd to the 26th, and it was between President FDR, Sir Winston Churchill, and Chiang Kai-shek. The second was held in Tehran on November the 28th to December the 1st between FDR, Churchill, and Joseph Stalin. Now, you might be asking yourself, based off of those dates, why didn't they all just meet together? The crux of it was the Soviet-Japanese Neutrality Pact, and to a lesser extent, though probably not so much for Chiang Kai-shek, Stalin was aiding the CCP. Because the Soviets had not declared war on the Japanese, it would not look good if they met with the leader of China. Likewise, Chiang Kai-shek was not too forthcoming to meet with Stalin. The easy fix was to just have two different conferences. Overall, the conferences did not really touch too much upon the Pacific War. But Stalin did promise to declare war on Japan within 90 days after the end of the European War. In return, he demanded military and logistical concessions in Manchuria, maintenance of Outer Mongolia, under Soviet control, as well as sovereignty over the Kuril Islands that stretched from the north part of Japan all the way to Russia's Kamchatka Peninsula. When Chiang Kai-shek heard about all of this, he was quite suspicious, and he noted, the influence of this conference on China will be great. I hope Roosevelt isn't plotting with Churchill and Stalin against me. Soon his suspicions would turn to anger when he discovered there were secret protocols relating to Manchuria. Stalin had made some assurances to Mao Zedong that once the Soviets were in the war against Japan, they would have forces to bear down into China to help tip the scale for the CCP against the NRA. Yet after the war, it would seem promises made by Joseph Stalin were not always kept. Another important aspect of the conferences was the British decision to cancel Operation Buccaneer, the invasion of the Admin Islands, because Admiral Mountbatten's landing crafts were required for landings that were about to be made in southern France. The Joint Chiefs of Staff were livid at this because it came at the exact same time the Japanese were reinforcing Burma. FDR overruled them and agreed to the British decision, and this in turn greatly pissed off Chiang Kai-shek. Yet at the same time, the Cairo Declaration had lifted up the morale for the Chinese army, and the Chinese people, to continue their war against the Japanese. Yet the declarations made by the Tehran Conference implied publicly that the CBI theater was all but abandoned to the mercy of Japan's air and land forces. Thus, it would be no coincidence the Japanese thought the time was ripe to launch an all-out offensive against China. In the meantime, the rather aggressive Admiral Mountbatten was trying to salvage what he could of the situation. To try and please Chiang Kai-shek, he proposed Operation Pigstick. The operation was something Mountbatten had wargamed a little bit. It was to be a landing on the southern Mayu Peninsula aimed at hitting Akiab. He began assigning landing craft for the amphibious operation, only to be immediately slapped down by Allenbrook and told to return the three fast tank landing crafts that were direly needed for the operations against Italy. Mountbatten had hoped to retain at least two slower tank landing craft, but Cunningham requested both of them. Pigstick was to be two divisions plus two brigades who would be used in a southward advance down the peninsula and one division in an amphibious assault aimed at surrounding and destroying not less than 20,000 Japanese. 
An additional landing similar to Pigstick could perhaps be launched in the Ramri Chiduba area. That could be a staging area that would put 15 cores within reach of Rangoon. Speaking of Ramri, if any of you have heard this kind of myth about over a thousand Japanese soldiers being eaten by crocodiles on that island, well, over on my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, I did a full investigation into this so-called Ramri Island Massacre story. I am not gonna lie, YouTube has been rather cruel to me this year. The performance of that video in particular was not so good. And honestly, I mean, I'm not just saying it because it's my own video, but it's, it's pretty good. It's actually a lot of fun, and uh, I uncovered a lot of interesting facts. So if you want to see something that's a little bit on the sillier side, but it is a very serious investigation, check out my episode on the Ramri Island Massacre. Now alongside Pigstick, Mountbatten changed the Tarzan operation into Operation Gripfast, calling for an offensive on the northern and central parts of Burma, with an airborne landing at Indau, to sever the Japanese lines of communication to Mitkinya. But now Chiang Kai-shek was very wary of anything British, so he rejected the plans on December the 19th. Alongside pissing off Chiang Kai-shek, his estranged wife, Joseph Stilwell, was also again very angry with the British, particularly Mountbatten. At one point, Mountbatten proposed moving certain American units into the Hukuang Valley to help the offensive there, and Stilwell burst in, I should like it placed on the record that I am responsible for the training of all American forces in this theater, and I am the person to decide when they are adequately trained and can move forward. Mountbatten replied, I accept that in principle, but would remind you that these troops are being trained under British officers. I am responsible for operations, and I will decide when units move into the fighting lines. In other words, General, I should like to place on record that I am Supreme Commander, out here, and what I say goes. To this, Stilwell took a good-humored laugh and said, None of us dispute that. That same day, Stilwell wrote a letter to his wife, referring scathingly to Mountbatten as, quote, He's a glamour boy. He doesn't wear well, and I begin to wonder if he knows his stuff. Enormous staff, endless walla walla, but damn little fighting. And of course, the peanut is unchanged. The jungle is a refuge from them both. These men would all be sharing some screaming matches against another, until Stilwell would shock everybody in the room by exclaiming, I am prepared to come under General Slim's operational control until I get to Kamang. It was a truly bizarre idea. Mountbatten asked how such a thing would work, and both Slim and Stilwell looked at each other and said they would discuss the matters amongst themselves. The two men would agree on tactical essentials, such as getting more Chinese divisions for the Lido force, and use the Chindits to assist in hitting Mitkinya. Slim and Stilwell shook hands, and Stilwell would say to him, I would fight under a corporal as long as it would let me fight. General Slim would later reflect, In practice, this illogical command setup worked surprisingly well. My method with Stilwell was based on what I had learned from him in the retreat, to send him the minimum of written instructions, but whenever I wanted anything, to fly over and discuss it with him, alone. Stilwell talking things over quietly with no one else present was a much easier and more likable person than Vinegar Joe with an audience. Alone, I never found him unreasonable or obstructive. 
I think I told him to do something he did not approve of on only two or three occasions, and on each he conformed. I will not say willingly, but with good grace. In the end, Operation Pigstick never became a reality, because the landing crafts were simply needed for the Italian campaign, and thus the hope of meeting Chiang Kai-shek's continued demand for an amphibious operation was gone. It was almost like the British never intended to go through with such a thing in the very first place. Whoops, uh, that's just my opinion. Not historical fact, of course. Meanwhile, the British Indian Command elected to start a new Operation Arakan. The brutal, hard-won lessons of the first Arakan battle had been absorbed into the Indian Command, with senior British officers determined to avoid similar mistakes. The new operation was the subject of meticulous reconnaissance, planning, and rehearsals. A series of lectures, war games, models of the grounds, and syndicate discussions were held for the commanders, the staff, and the regimental officers, whom carefully considered countering Japanese offensive tactics and assaulting prepared defensive positions like those witnessed at the Donbak. A carefully planned program of continuous progressive and intensive training was put in the hands for all corps and divisional fighting. Support and administrative troops to practice necessary skills, including using brigade boxes, aerial resupply, and infiltration and envelopment of enemy positions. This comprehensive training program culminated in intensive rehearsals and combined arms training with artillery, tanks, and close support of aircraft carried out near Lahardaga over ground resembling Arakan. This simulated attacks on mock Japanese defensive positions on jungle-clad hills. General Auchinleck assigned the 15th Corps, reconstituted at Anchi, with the three best-trained divisions available. Major General Harold Briggs' 5th Indian Division, Major General Frank Meservy's 7th Indian Division, and Major General Christopher Woolner's 81st West African Division. The 26th Indian Division formed the Corps Reserve. Command of the 15th Corps would be given to Lieutenant General Philip Christensen. The plan called for the 5th and 7th Indian Divisions to advance along the summit of the Mayu Range towards Mangda and Buthudang, while the 5th and 6th West African Brigades would provide flanking protection. On November the 1st, the two Indian Divisions began their advance and by mid-November would make contact with a Japanese outpost. As the 7th Indian Division advanced astride the Kalapazan River, they ran into very stiff resistance. Efforts to dislodge Japanese defenders near Alenbin and Letwidet showcased the formidable difficulties that attacking Japanese defensive bunker positions presented. Most were built on razorback ridges, through which were burrowed fired positions affording a limited approach, while the reverse slopes protected troops from the view and bombardment. With the precipitous Gope Pass initially only suitable for porters, pack transport, and pack artillery, the 7th Indian Division quickly devised other methods to overcome enemy defenses, since normal, stereotyped, set-piece attacks stood little chance of success without supporting field artillery. Aircraft proved an ineffective substitute, moreover, with dive bombing having only a transitory effect since the broken terrain and dense jungle absorbed blasts leaving defenses and morale largely intact, unless a lucky direct hit was made. The Indian forces began to infiltrate and bypass the well-entrenched Japanese defenses, giving the impression they would soon unleash a frontal attack upon them at any moment. General Meservy would say of this action, We will undoubtedly have a Neapolitan sandwich of British, Japs, British, but it will be one made by ourselves, and with the initiative in our hands, and it will soon be transformed to British, British, Jap. They were beginning to gain ground, and with valuable combat experience alongside it. 
On the night of November the 30th, the 15th Indian Corps commenced large-scale operations to drive the Japanese outpost line astride the Mayu Range. A series of brisk skirmishes were fought by the 33rd Indian Infantry Brigade on the jungle-cloaked ridges south of Aulinbin, quickly evicting small determined parties of Japanese infantry from carefully prepared platoon and company defensive localities. This was by no means an easy task, since most heavily camouflaged positions were built atop steep hillsides overlooking paddy fields that provided excellent open fields of fire, and difficult going for advancing troops. Earlier directions about infiltration paid off in practice. An attack against an Alenbin West redoubt from the rear through thick jungle achieved complete surprise. Although a neighboring Japanese position initially held out, its garrison withdrew on the 2nd of December after being cut off. The 33rd Brigade columns crossed the Nagaki-Dok Chong and occupied the area from Nagaki-Dok village to the ridge about 1.5 miles northwest of Sinobien village. By December the 3rd, they extended the area of operation to the hills overlooking the Mangi Thong and Sinyomien. The 89th Brigade, meanwhile, pushed forward down the Tatmian Chong and established forward positions on the hills south of the Chong, one mile west of Tatmian Yangwa. By mid-month, the 7th Indian Division had reached the main enemy positions covering the tunnels and the Buthidong, and the opening of the Nakidok Pass to the wheeled traffic in late December considerably easing resupply and allowed the divisional artillery to join the formation. However, both Indian divisions were under orders not to get engaged in any serious fighting with the Japanese, so the advance stopped there. It is also important to note, in November of 1943, Spitfires were deployed in Bengal for the first time. The 615th and 617th squadrons were based in Chittagong to protect the vital port and also cover for the Arakan Offensive. Within one month, the Spitfires destroyed four Japanese photographic reconnaissance aircraft. Previously, the Dinah's range, speed, and height had enabled them to fly with impunity over Allied forward bases, and the Hurricanes were just unable to catch them. The Japanese reacted by sending out fighter sweeps in order to test the Spitfires and whittle down Spitfire strength. However, by the end of December, the Japanese lost 22 aircraft and another 33 were damaged. The Allies, they lost only 13. The greatest air battle occurred on the last day of 1943. On that day, number 136 Squadron destroyed 12 and damaged 11 when a mixed force of Japanese fighters and bombers attempted to attack the light naval force along the Arakan coast. The Japanese carried out one strategic attack when on the 5th of December 1943, 60 bombers and fighters, including some naval aircraft, in two waves bombed Calcutta. The Japanese would lose two aircraft and another five were damaged. The three and a half squadrons of hurricane fighters, including half a squadron of night fighters, which were defending the area, lost about five aircraft and another six were damaged. Over to the west, the 5th Indian Division had also encountered stiff resistance from Japanese outposts as it advanced southwards along the coastal plains towards Mangdal, through the foothills further north and along the spine of the jungle-clad Mayu Mountains. They soon discovered that overcoming Japanese bunker defenses presented particular difficulties. As a divisional report would indicate, The great difficulty in attacking Jap hilltop positions lie in the concealment of the actual bunker or weapons pit, one brigade commander later wrote, and in the practical impossibility of deploying attacking troops in thick jungle, particularly where the approach runs along the top of a razorback ridge. In each case, patrols infiltrated between these localities, isolating them from supplies and reinforcements, with the result being that the Japanese would just normally give up ground without contest. A newsletter presented by the HQ of the 5th Indian Division reported, 
The only way to deal with the Japanese defensive positions is by infiltration. Recent experience has shown that the Jap has produced nothing new in defensive tactics. It is almost physically impossible in hilly and thick country to have every post covered by another. The post can be eliminated piecemeal by infiltration tactics. After the outline of the main Japanese defenses became apparent, this approach was also increasingly applied at a brigade level. At the end of December 1943, the 5th Indian Division held the area from the sea to the crest of the Mayu Peninsula, and the 7th Indian Division moved into the Kalapazan Valley. By the end of the month, they had reached Mangdao. The advancing 5th Indian Division discovered that frontal assaults could not be completely avoided, however, when Japanese troops were determined to stay put. During this advance, the 161st Brigade moved to the high ground to the northeast of Bakagona, about five miles to the north of Razabil. On the 30th of December, the 161st Indian Brigade assaulted point 124, but the 4 and 7th Rajputs were held up by a dense jungle and heavy motor and machine gun fire, suffering heavy casualties. For six days, assaults continued with forward infantry regularly reaching the Japanese defenses before being driven off by showers of hand grenades and supporting machine gun fire from every other enemy defensive position within range. Only after, quote, a policy of strangulation, starvation, and attrition was adopted. Did the defenders withdraw? The 5th Indian Division immediately began probing the main Razorville defenses, while its 123rd Indian Infantry Brigade patrolled the western foothills of the Mayu Range and the northern side of Razorville, particularly two hills position dubbed Renkat and Renkinton. To do so, an indirect approach was again advocated by Major General Harold Briggs, in note on tactical policy issue of the 4th of January, stressing the importance of patrolling to identify positions held by the Japanese and infiltration to seize vital ground in their flanks or rear that would either provoke Japanese counterattacks or force a withdrawal. Meanwhile, Stilwell arrived to Xingbingwiyang on December the 21st and assumed command of the Chinese forces in India. To relieve the trap battalion of the 112th Regiment at Yopbanga, Stilwell and General Sun planned to send the entire 114th Regiment to break the Japanese center at Yupanga, thus rescuing the 112th, then hook north to involve the northern fragment of the Japanese defensive lines. On December the 24th, they unleashed artillery and launched the infantry right into the Japanese lines. The 114th Regiment managed to envelop the Japanese right flank by the afternoon, and soon a breakthrough emerged, allowing for them to make contact with 112th. Sun's men had surrounded the Japanese pocket during the night and would wipe them out the next morning. And thus, the Chinese had gained their first victory at Yubanga, though the Japanese still held the river crossing. So Stilwell began plans for another assault set after Christmas. On December the 28th, Sun ordered three battalions to attack the north, while the 1st Battalion, 112th Regiment, would sweep to the right, getting behind the three Japanese outer strongpoints. The Chinese forces rapidly broke the Japanese outer defenses, creating a breach while the 1st Battalion, 114th Regiment, broke through the river defensive line. The Japanese tossed a large counterattack, but it would be repelled by the nighttime. Now Yopanga was in Allied hands, as the surviving Japanese companies split into smaller groups trying to hold out for many days. With the fall of Yopanga, the Japanese were forced to withdraw from the Shauraga as well, so elements of the 2nd Battalion, 113th Regiment, were able to seize it by December the 30th. In the meantime, the 22nd Division's 65th Regiment had been sent towards the Taro Plain to try and secure the southern flank. The 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the 114th Regiment had been sent to the south to cross the Tanaika at the Kantao Ford in an effort to cut off the enemy withdrawal line. 
By the end of 1943, with the loss of 315 killed and 429 wounded, Sun's 38th Division had gained complete control of the Trunka. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you were still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Check out that episode I mentioned on the Ramri Island Massacre. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is a doozy. It is me explaining why the Japanese performed so many atrocities during the Second World War. Things were deteriorating for the Japanese on New Britain, as American Marines were seizing features and gradually pushing them to the Borken Bay. Within the CBI theater, a ton of drama amongst the high commanders was, surprisingly, not resulting in a complete disaster, as operations in Burma were kicking off with great results. Perhaps Burma could be saved.